is so nice to have a clap as you get onto stage and not be in an empty room. It is so much fun. I am so glad that you're here. Welcome to the 5 p.m. It is Easter Sunday, and so from me to you, happy Easter. I am excited for what God is going to say through His Word. And uh, we did have a lot of fun uh, putting together our Good Friday uh, gathering online. I know for many of us, online is a difficult space, uh, but I hope with the extra uh, effort and creativity, uh, it was a good experience for you. We had a lot of fun. Our team put in a lot of effort, um, and I really do want to honor them. Uh, We do believe that there is power in us gathering, whether that is online or in person like this. God cares. God has something to say to us. And I really believe uh, as we dive, because we'll still be in Zechariah chapter 9 this evening, uh, I really do believe God's going to speak through it. I I started out prepping for this, asking this question, um, how do we get Easter right? How do we get Easter right? I believe we get Easter right when we understand who the hero in the story is. When we get the hero right, we will get Easter right. And so often we can get our order mixed up and our focus just out of whack. Now, I'll be honest up front, this is church. It's a safe space. I'm hoping you can hold back your judgment. Uh, But today in the early house, uh, the order was not correct. The order was not as it should be because I had a two and a half year old toddler wake up and the very first words out of her mouth was not happy Easter, was not Jesus is alive. The very first words out of her mouth was chocolate now. Because she got spoiled by her granny yesterday with a lint bunny and all she had dreamed about all night was that bunny. And so chocolate was the first thing on her mind. Jesus was second. And so we're going to get the order right eventually. But I really believe uh, if we're going to get Easter right, we need to get the order right. We need to get the hero right. And that hero is Jesus. If you were with us on Friday, joining us online, you would have heard, I I took us to a passage in, in the book of Zechariah. We've been traveling through the minor prophets. And to be in an Old Testament passage like that was awesome because it was actually a prophecy that was fulfilled in the lifetime of Jesus 500 years after it was spoken where he would actually make this entry into Jerusalem, where he would almost have his moment of crowning his coronation, being the king who was promised to the nation of Israel and to all humanity, the one who was the Messiah who would bring salvation to us. And as he did that, as he came in, people had their idea of what their king would look like. And he gets to the moment past the entry where now it's the moment for crowning. And the expectation of the people was that his crown would be a regal one. His crown would be bejeweled. His crown would have precious metal as its material. And yet the crown he received on Good Friday was not a crown like that. It was a crown of thorns. And yet that was the means for our salvation as he became our substitute, dying a death for us, for our sin, for our missing the mark, for our imperfection, for us not getting it right, not measuring up to the holiness of a holy God. And yet his love for us is so deep that he makes a way to redeem us back. And so by the crown of thorns, there's a means for salvation, but the crown of thorns was not where it ended. The crown of thorns is temporary. It was a moment where the price had to be paid. But once that price was paid, it got swapped out for a different crown and he receives a crown of glory so that the name of Jesus would be exalted above every single name, that he is lifted up by the Father. 
And so we look this Sunday at Resurrection Sunday, the victory of Jesus walking out of the empty tomb as the King of glory, wearing a crown of glory. And I'm so excited because I do believe, I'm one of those crazy people that believe it doesn't matter what you're talking about, but when you're talking about the Word of God, it will speak to all generations, all situations. And so our plan as we dive into this um, is actually going to have three dimensions to it. You're getting a 3D preach today. And the three dimensions we're going to be looking at is number one, Zechariah chapter nine, 500 years before the uh, birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Fast forward 500 years to a year after Easter all goes down in Acts chapter five with Peter and the apostles. And then fast forward a few thousand years to us today. And what I hope you see is that God's word as he was speaking in Zechariah was powerful, as he was speaking to the apostles was powerful. And as he speaks to you and me, today is powerful. That's our plan. I've given this message the title and it's these three things and I believe they're uh, important and prevalent to every single group uh, that we are prisoners, soldiers and jewels on the crown. Three things, three things that were important in Zechariah, three things that were important in Acts chapter 5 to the apostles and three things that I believe are true of us when we find ourselves in the kingdom of glory, knowing we've got a king who wears a crown of glory. Why don't you pray with me and we'll dive in. Father God, it's my prayer that as, on the, as we gather on this Easter Sunday, on this 5 p.m. evening gathering, Lord, that you've got an appointment with, with each one of us where your truth is absolutely gonna destroy any misconception we have, where your love is gonna envelop us, where your presence is gonna be so tangible that your peace becomes a reality to each one of our souls tonight. Father God, we get to celebrate in the midst of the darkness and the shame and the difficulty of our world. We get to be ones that sit knowing that there is a victory in God because we have been brought in to his kingdom. And so Lord, I pray you would speak to each one of us wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves I pray that all glory goes to you. I pray you be over my words. These are your words and not mine. And I pray that they would fall on good soil and that we would walk out of here changed. And then everybody said, amen. amen. Number one, prisoners. But very specifically, you're gonna see we are prisoners of hope. This is what it says at the beginning of our passage in Zechariah chapter nine and verse 12. It says, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, today I declare that I will restore to you double. If you've been tracking with us in the book of Zechariah, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, have actually found their way back to Jerusalem, their hometown, and are in the midst of rebuilding it. It had been destroyed. They had been carried off into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. And they are now allowed to go back. And so they're rebuilding their city, rebuilding its walls, rebuilding the temple, the place of their worship. And yet they still find themselves in a bit of an in-between space. And so the word of God through Zechariah to them is that you are prisoners of hope. Because for them, they were prisoners in the sense that they weren't in full captivity as they were for about 70 odd years. They're in about a half a captivity because they're sitting rebuilding at home, but they are still under the control of their captors. And yet they sit in that space as those type of prisoners in that kind of captivity, but they have a hope knowing that there is a final redemption that will come. That actually God has a plan to bring full restoration to them as a people, them as a nation, and actually 
to all humanity as a whole. And so we are prisoners of hope just like they were. And his heart, I hope you don't miss it, the heart of God to them and the heart of God to us is that they would return to their stronghold. And who is that? That is God himself. I don't know if you're in need of a place of refuge. I don't know if you're in this space where a stronghold would be pretty cool to get behind right now, considering all that is going on in our world. But I hope that you are hearing God's word to you, God's desire for you, God's plan for you even tonight through his word, that he would be your great refuge, that he did bring a stronghold into the world that no one could overtake and his name was Jesus. Fast forward 500 plus years, I told you this was actually could be classified the very first Easter. It's a year after uh, the big weekend, a year after Friday and Sunday and Jesus dropping the mic. And the apostles are finding themselves in Acts chapter 5 in a growing and thriving community. The church has been birthed. The message is going out. People are being saved. It is gaining and growing. And at the same rate that it is gaining and growing, it is also finding a gaining and growing opposition to it. Because I don't know if you know this, but humans are very scared of what they can't control. And what we really should be really scared of is something that is controlled by God and not controlled by man. And so opposition begins to rise against the early church. This is what happens in Acts chapter 5. I'll read from verse 12. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, Solomon's colonnade, basically an undercover balcony where the church was meeting on the temple grounds. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Miracles are being done. The word is getting out. It's gathering. It's gaining. It's, it's growing in stature. People are hearing about it. It's been around for about a year. They've heard of this guy who died, who rose again, and him, in him you can have new life. And they're these crazy guys who love on a city, love on a community, and are literally shaking up the world. And at the same time, you have opposition growing. You have the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders of the day getting very antsy because this is not under their control. Verse 17 says, But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, put them in the public prison. For the apostles, it was not a prison in terms of a half captivity. For them, it was literal prison behind metal bars. They were doing what God had called them to do. And because of the schemes of man, they get placed into a public prison. They're facing great opposition. What I don't want us to miss as we see both of these situations is that actually every single one of us, if you are born into this world, is actually a prisoner. The question is what type? Because the prison we find ourselves in as we are born into this world is actually the prison of this flesh. The prison that of, the, of our own will saying, hey, we want to go our own way and yet is, is imperfect. It is not holy. It is not as God created. And so when we go our own way, we find that we come unstuck and it becomes a mess. That's where the apostles had found themselves. When they were prisoners with no hope, when they were prisoners with no significance, when they were prisoners with no identity, when they were prisoners with the old life, when they were prisoners with no purpose. And yet now they are prisoners of hope. And so behind metal bars in prison, they actually have the greatest hope for all eternity. 
All of us are prisoners. It just depends what type. Are you prisoners with hope or are you prisoners without? Zechariah brings his word. And as I said, I'm one of those crazy people that believe God's word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so his word to his people matters right now. That you would be a people of hope. That actually in God you have a stronghold. That his desire is that he would be your place of great refuge. He actually had a plan to redeem the world, to bring freedom. And what was it a freedom for? It was a freedom with a purpose attached. And so it doesn't just end with us being prisoners of hope. It actually now enlists us into his army so that the battle can be won with us involved. Point two is this, that we are now also soldiers under his command. Zechariah 9 is going to get very militaristic in its language because the battle cry will rise and it's going to express a few things that are four things I want to highlight about God, how he deals in his kingdom. If he is the one wearing the crown of glory, well, this is what he's about. First one I want to highlight is this, that God has weapons. Verse 13 of Zechariah 9 says, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, the enemy. And I will wield you like a warrior's sword. It doesn't just end in hope. It means that there is a battle that is waging. And God says, actually, in this battle, weapons are needed. And the weapons I will use is my people. And so I will wield you like a warrior's sword. And what is so important as he mentions Judah and Ephraim here, what we might miss is that in that time in the known world, they actually were some of the best bow makers known to man. They were actually some of the best marksmen when it came to shooting arrows. And yet God says, Judah will be my bow and Ephraim will be its arrows. And so what he is saying to his people is, is, hey, remember, I know you have some renown. I know you have some skill, but we will not move forward based on that. We will move forward based on me. That actually you will be my weapons, that you will be the weapons in my hand to bring victory in this battle. It's never about us. It's always about him. Second thing it highlights is God's leadership. Continues in verse 14. It says, then the Lord will appear over them. God will have authority. God will take command. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet. He's not just in command. He's also the one that will call the shots that will move us from point A to point B. If you didn't know, armies back in the day didn't have radios. They didn't have satellites. They didn't have communication in that way, shape, or form. They had trumpets. And so trumpets were used to move an army from one place to another. It was there to communicate, to call for an attack, to call for a retreat. And it says that God will be the one to sound the trumpet. He doesn't call someone else to do it. He says, I will call the shots. I'm in control. I'm the one who is the leader over this. And it says, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. I want you to know if there is this army, this army, and it has a king over it, a general over it, and he is the king of glory. I want you to know what type of general he is. Because it says he will march forth. Meaning that he's not the general who sticks in the back, sends the guys ahead into the front line, into the thick of it, and then follows behind when the worst is over. No, he's the general who says, I will lead the attack. I'll march forth. I'll be ahead of the crowd so that I'm the one who takes the first blow and I'll be the one to give the first strike. That's the type of leadership you have when you follow God. 
then talks about God's protection. Verse 15 says, The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. When you're talking about the God of glory, the God of the universe, His enemies will never subdue Him. And so when we are enlisted, when we are soldiers under His command, what we are guaranteed is that our enemies, His enemies, will never subdue us either. Because we will find protection in our God. That He will actually be our defender. And I don't want you to think that that is just one-dimensional, one-sided or something soft. God's going to defend me. God's going to protect me. I want you to know God also is the one who attacks for us. He's the one who knocks down the enemy so that they cannot subdue us. If you're accustomed to sport, you'll know this, that defense is important because defense wins championships. But if all you have is good defense and no attack, what you will have is a team that's very difficult to beat, but you'll hardly win any games. The God we serve is not just our protector and our defender. He is also the one that will attack the enemies on our behalf so that we are not just protected in the short term. We're not just protected one dimensionally. He's actually never going to let us be subdued by those enemies. Last thing it speaks of is God's victory and His blessing. It says, And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bow, drenched like the corners of the altar. It's the evening, it's the 5 p.m. Suddenly when I said uh, wine, I watched like heads rise. People got excited. It's okay, don't worry. Offsite consumption is not allowed. When we're talking about God and in God alone, victory is guaranteed. The creator of the universe, the king of glory, doesn't get defeated. It's guaranteed. And I love the language used here in Zechariah because it gives us a picture of a celebration. It gives us a picture of almost that great feast, the eating and the drinking after the victory is won. And yet we in the kingdom, as we're brought in under his kingship, find ourselves in the space where we did nothing to bring about the victory. And yet there we are in the victory party. We're the ones drinking and enjoying and roaring with laughter and making raucous noise, enjoying it, finding ourselves uh, within the blessing of that victory. And yet we know we did nothing to add to it. It's why it speaks about the altar, because what it is saying is our response in that space is to enjoy the celebration, but to put honor where it is due, to give sacrifice and worship where it is due to the one who brought the victory. I'll take you back to Acts chapter 5. I had mentioned this could be classified as the very first Easter, and you're actually going to find what could be classified as the very first Easter message. I said this uh, in the morning, I'll say it again. It's not in my notes. It's a little Easter egg for you. I know there's some Christians who really hate the, the name Easter because it actually, and this is quite true, it has uh, its origins in pagan worship. There was a pagan festival, pagan God, and the, at some time the early church overtook the name and we, it became Easter as it is right now. I just want you to know, I have no worry, no scar, no shame saying happy Easter because what I know about our God and seeing how he works is that he will redeem all things to himself. That actually he can take things that are apart from him, that are secular, even things that were made uh, specifically to be against him and say, cool, I'll take that and I'll point it to where the attention and the focus should be, the hero of the story. And so happy Easter. It's a little Easter for you. 
Back to Acts chapter 5. Peter and the apostles find themselves in prison. This is what happens in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple. Speak to the people all the words of this new life. What happens? The apostles obey. At daybreak, next morning, there they are, back in the temple courts, doing the same thing that got them thrown in prison the first time around. The religious leaders then that next morning call for them to be brought before them, thinking they're still in the prison. Gets awkward quick. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, we found no one inside. A bit of an awkward moment for the professional soldiers, the professional guards at this time. Uh, You're all standing ready and waiting and protecting nothing. And then an even more awkward moment, someone comes up and says, oh, by the way, those guys, yeah, they're back in the temple. They're just chatting. There's a whole crowd. They're they're excited. And so they had to make the awkward trek. And because the crowd held them in high esteem, they were worried the crowd was now going to attack them if they took them by force. And so they had the awkward moment of, hey, guys, good job getting out. um, But would you mind coming with us? And the apostles are good oaks. They say, cool. And they head. And they come before what is known as the Sanhedrin. It was the highest ruling authority of the Jewish leadership at that time. And this is what happens. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. If you want to know, I didn't say this as well this morning. You guys are just getting it all today. If you've ever wanted to know just how scared someone can be of what they can't control, do you realize that the question the guy asks is that one and not, hey, how did you guys get out? They knew how they got out. That's just for you. I'll take you back to the four things we had highlighted. Because I see these four things that we mentioned in Zechariah 9, and I see them present here in Acts chapter 5. First one, it speaks of God's weapons. And the two weapons that we see being wielded by the apostles in this moment is number one, the message. It says that people were being saved, that the Lord was actually adding to their number. And at this time, it was at its greatest intensity and its greatest frequency. People being saved, the message had got out because the message was not one of man, it was a supernatural message. And it was a message not just of, hey, you can improve your life with this. Hey, you can get a better life with this. It was a message that says you get a new life with this. And it came with living examples in these apostles. Peter and the apostles could stand there four years later and say, if only you knew what we were like four years ago. Some of you do. Jesus changed everything for us. It was not just, hey, here's an improved life. Hey, here's a little bit of a fix for your broken life. It was, hey, let's take that. Let's toss it aside. Let's give you new life in Jesus. There is something supernaturally powerful about that message. And it absolutely changed all of human history. This event, Easter, this Resurrection Sunday, absolutely split the human calendar in half. It changed everything. Because it doesn't just deal in a a quick fix or self-help. It deals in complete life transformation. 
And these people watched it before their eyes with these men who had been completely changed. There wasn't just a message. There was also a second weapon, and that was ministry. People weren't just being saved. They also saw people were being healed because they had now Holy Spirit power. And so I said it before, what they were dealing in was not the weapons of man, but actually dealing in weapons of God. And it's so important to understand that in the weapon of their ministry, in the weapon of people being healed. Because actually it got so hectic that uh, at that time, as the apostles would be entering the temple, people used to line the streets with those who were sick, with those who were lame, with those who were blind, hoping that maybe one of the apostles' shadows would hit them and they'd be healed. Now, I know there would be other preachers on different platforms who would absolutely lose their minds at that verse and take it a very different way. I'm not going to focus in on whether or not someone got healed by Peter's shadow. What I do want to focus on is this, that what was very clear and what was going on in this time was that people were being healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom was advancing because of it. And glory was going to where it should be placed and that was to God and God alone. A little sidebar. I often hear people say, um, something along these lines. But you know what? I really do envy the, the, the church of Acts because it really feels like they were just seeing miracles uh, of such great intensity and such great frequency and we don't see that today. Can I tell you, they had the same spirit we have. And A, we do see miracles. In this church, in this community, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, I can tell you, and a lot of people can tell you here, we have had testimonies come from this platform of miracles being done, of a resurrection, of financial breakthrough, of mir miraculous healing from many, many different things, many, many different people to the point where medical science can't explain it. And we sit there and go, well, it doesn't really happen. Okay, it does. Okay, but it doesn't happen as often as it happened then. Put it in perspective. Miracles in that day were still special, and I think we miss it. But I also want to just poke in on our motivation and our perspective on it. Because if you have to hold it in, in tension, you have 28 chapters in the book of Acts, spanning about 30 years. You only have 18 recorded miracles in the book of Acts. Now, I agree, there would have been many more miracles that weren't recorded. But when we talk about that they were regularly done, it wasn't like every second it was just a magic show with Peter and the apostles. Because if it was, then it would have been all about man and not about the power of God. Don't miss that, because that's where the apostles got this right. They understood that actually it was not about what they were doing, it was about who they were with. They understood, hey, it's not about the stuff that we do. It's not about the shadow hitting. It's actually about the one who is present here and the power that is at work within us and through us. And I'll be the first to admit that so often we can get it wrong. And I'll be the first to admit that the, sometimes the worst people at this are people who stand in a position like me on a platform like this. Because we can make it about man and forget it's about the power of God. We forget that it is not our message, it's His. We forget that it's not our ministry, our church, our kingdom, it's His. The challenge for each and every one of us this Easter is what message and what ministry are you carrying when you leave this place? Has your focus got a bit mixed up? 
is that message and that ministry maybe not as present as it used to be. God wants to wake us up again to say this is a moment where we get to act. Second thing we looked at was God's leadership. We see it here again. God's word comes through an angel. The angel says, I'm gonna free you, but you're gonna go back to the temple, preach the gospel, the good news of this new life. And they immediately obey. Now you can turn around and say, well, Dunks, you know, I've never been commanded by an angel. If I was, I would do it. How about the word of God? How about the command of scripture? How about Jesus's words himself? Would that be enough to move us? Would that be enough to lead us? Would that be enough to command us to action? Words like, go make disciples. Words like, hey, you need to be salt and light in a world that's so desperately needed. Words like, hey, you need to pick up your cross daily and follow me. The command is there. The leading is there. The question is, will we obey as they did? Third thing, God's protection. I had mentioned this on Friday, that sometimes what we as humans can do, and Israel had done it in their idea or their construct in their mind of what the Messiah or the King would look like. I think when we talk about and we hone in on God's protection, sometimes we can construct an idea in our head of what that should look like. We can construct an expectation we have in how that should play out. And yet when we weigh it up against the truth of Scripture and how it went down, with the apostles as it went down with God in his word and as he, in his action, it sometimes can get a bit different. We sometimes can notice there, there is something that has gone wrong. And so for a moment, I just wanna check our motivation. I wanna check our heart in the matter. I wanna check our perspective in it because the angel will declare this word and then the miracle will happen. The miracle of them being freed from prison to the point where no one knows that it's happened. Unlock the doors, walk out, Be free, go preach in the temple. No one knows. Now we could look at this and say, well, that's obviously God's protection. He was taking them out of the circumstance, taking them out of the imprisonment. But I wanna remind you, if our focus in desiring God to move and God to move specifically miraculously is simply to take us out for our comfort or our safety, we might only get half the story. Because what were they saved for? What were they taken out for? To be thrown back into the fire. To do the very same thing, to preach the gospel and see the kingdom advance. And don't get me wrong here. This is my disclaimer. We serve a God of miracles. We serve a God who has desire to work in our lives miraculously. He has a desire to heal. He has a desire to protect. He has a desire to take us out of these circumstances where life and darkness can be closing in. But God's greatest desire, God's greatest goal for you and me is not our comfort. His greatest desire is that His kingdom advances. And we are a part of that. And so sometimes we just need to check our heart in those moments where we have this great desire and I get it, our heart is there. But if it is just for our comfort, if it is just for our security, so what? It's temporary. For these guys, it meant go back into the fire. It meant go before the Sanhedrin. It meant actually eventually gets flogged, beaten. And every single one of them, what it meant at the end, they would be martyred. We sometimes need to just check ourselves because God protects and God brings victory, but he will do it his way. Last one. There is no greater 
victory and blessing that we could ever speak about, ever celebrate than Jesus walking out of the empty grave. Then God bringing redemption to His world, to His creation. Then God actually enacting this plan to uh, bring salvation to all of humanity, that that offer is actually there. Not, it wasn't just for Israel. It wasn't just for the apostles. It's there for you and me. If only we would step into it. There's such victory in His resurrection. I asked the question, you know, like, are we just saved for saved sake? Or are we saved for a purpose? And that leads me to point three. We're not just prisoners of hope. We're not just soldiers under His command. But we are also now jewels on His crown. It says this at the end of our passage in Zechariah 9, verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. On that day, James spoke about it last week. On that day, the day Jesus brings ultimate victory where he wipes away every tear, corrects every wrong, we will see that final victory. But we know that we now in this moment live in the present age in the victory of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, on him walking out of that empty tomb, of him overcoming death and darkness and all forms of evil. We live in that space, in that victory. We know that he was the one that exchanged that crown of thorns for the crown of glory so that the king of glory could sit on his throne over his kingdom and welcome us in. I love that it uses this language of him being our shepherd because yet again, that's what God is for us. He's the one who says, I wanna be your stronghold. I wanna be your refuge. I wanna be your shepherd because you are my sheep. And I will tend to you as a shepherd tends to a flock. I will be the God who pursues you like a a shepherd pursues his flock. That I will leave the 99 to go fetch the one to bring you back in. That is his heart for each and every single one of us. But also you are not saved. You're not brought in just to be an ornament. You're not just brought in saved for saved sake. You're saved for a purpose. And so you're also saved to now be jewels on a crown, where actually you will shine and display the glory, the majesty, the mercy, and the grace of God to the whole earth. You will shine on His land. And notice with jewels, because He knows the value we have. As He looks at you and me, as God looks deep into your soul, He sees great value. It doesn't end there. He also sees great purpose, that you will be a witness of His mercy, of His love, and you will shine in this earth. We weren't saved to to simply be saved. We were saved to point to the Savior. Throughout the book of the Acts, it screams that truth. We were saved by grace, but we're also saved to point to the one who gives us that grace. Every time I get to this truth in Scripture, I'm reminded of the analogy of the Titanic. Um, Very famous boat, the boat that was unsinkable, hit an iceberg and went down. And the big flaw of the whole process was that they did not have enough lifeboats to save everyone. And so 1,500 people would perish, would drown. Now, when you get into the numbers, it's quite scary. That boat was designed to have 48 lifeboats on it. It only had 20. The very first boat that went and hit the water had 28 passengers on it. It had capacity for 65. There was a boat in the 20 that became known as the Millionaire's Club. One boat, 12 passengers. Five of them millionaires, seven of of them servants to the millionaires. The rest of the boat, empty. 
If you had to count all the empty spaces on lifeboats as they rowed away from the Titanic and people hit the water, there, would, there was 472 empty spaces. 472 lives that could have been saved just by filling the seats. And the most scary stat, the one that jarred me the most, is out of the 20 boats that rowed away as people were in the water about to drown, the amount of boats that went back to try and save more, one. One out of 20. One of the greatest tragedies in all of that century. And I look to us and I say, if we are ones who have been saved by grace, we're literally, the prison we found ourselves in was met with a key of grace and mercy and love. And that key is now here and available and in our hand. Why would we not turn to our neighbor's cell and let them out? Because I want you to know this. That key is not individualized. That key is for everyone. That we are actually the ones who hold it that we are actually now the ones who are jewels in the crown. And so our call is to display that grace, to display that mercy. We know we are not the ones who do the saving, but we point to the Savior. Asked in the very beginning, how do we get Easter right? We get it right by getting the hero right. And how I want us to end our Easter Sunday celebration is to marvel again at our Savior to look to him as the one who brought grace and salvation to our world. The one who changed everything in history simply because he had a gift. And that gift is on offer to each and every one of us. But he is also the one who calls us into a kingdom where victory is guaranteed, where there is a celebration and a great feast, where we will eat and drink and be raucous because of the love of God, because of the victory of God, because of the power of God that is at work in us. And through us, we're saved with a, a new identity, a new life, but we're also given a new purpose. We're going to take communion together. I'd encourage you to find a, your communion cup on your chair. Grab it now. Get yourself ready. We're going to take it together. And what a beautiful way to celebrate. And this is not going to, you can stand with me as, as you're ready. This is not going to be one of those communions where we'll get really somber and contemplative. Communion is simply a moment where as someone who is in a relationship with Jesus says, hey, I will remember what Jesus did on that cross. And as he walked out of that tomb, I know that I have new life in him. And so this communion is gonna take a celebratory approach. I wanna remind you of those words of Zechariah, that great feast where there was a lot of drink, good drink and a lot of good food and there was raucous loudness because of the victory and the blessing that God brings and remind you that we actually are the ones who sit in that blessing and the celebration of Easter is a celebration of that, that we are actually the ones who turn every eye, every heart, every life over to Jesus and say, you are the one. You are the one worthy of it all. You are the one who is worthy of all worship, all honor and all glory. And in that we will celebrate. In that we will get loud. Jesus did this with his disciples. He took the bread and he said to them, this is my body. And this is my body that on Good Friday will be broken for you. I will hang on a cross for six hours. I will take that last breath. I will defeat death in that moment, knowing that Sunday is coming. 
It was through this, that crown of thorns, the means of our salvation, we celebrate, so we eat together. He then took the cup. His cup was filled with wine because that's the true celebratory drink. But he took the cup and he said, this is my blood that will be poured out for you. And as we drink it, I'd encourage you. This is a cheers kind of a moment. I know it's COVID, you maybe can't do that. But this is a cheers moment where as we drink, we drink in honor of Jesus and what he did, but understanding that because of him, we have victory, we have new life. And that is what we celebrate. Let's drink together. When we celebrate, we eat, we drink, we get loud, we sing, we clap, we dance. We're gonna do every single one of those things now. Dekelo and the band are gonna do it. I encourage you to join them. Don't let a mask hold you back. Let's on this Easter Sunday choose to celebrate all that Jesus has done, to get raucous, to join in the feast and the sound of heaven. Let's let the light in.